Hey there, and welcome to the Agentic Voice Podcast. In today's episode, we are discussing comparative pedagogy and Feldenkrais, a self-discovery process using movement. My name is Kristen Ruiz, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Geneva Main, and I am so delighted to have as our featured guest, Dr. Elizabeth Blades. Dr. Blades, we are so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. And uh, for our listeners, I want to share a little bit about Dr. Blade's background. She holds a doctor, a doctor of musical arts and masters of music degrees from the Eastman School of Music. She has mostly most recently been a visiting professor of music at Alfred University in New York. Previous faculty appointments were adjunct associate professor of voice at Shenandoah University Conservatory, Heidelberg University, where she served as the associate professor of music, coordinator of vocal studies and director of opera, the Eastman School of Music and visiting professor of music at Nazareth College in Rochester. Dr. Blades is the author of A Spectrum of Voices, prominent American voice teachers discuss the teaching of singing and the second edition came out in 2018. Uh, she is also a co-author with Samuel Nelson of Singing With Your Whole Self, A Singer's Guide to Feldenkrais Awareness Through Movement. There's also a second edition that was available in 2018. Dr. Nelson and Dr. Blades have just completed their newest book, The Feldenkrais Method for Instrumentalists, A Guide to Awareness Through Movement. And we're anticipating that in February of 2024, Dr. Dr. Blades presents nationally and internationally in workshops to advance the understanding of the impact of Feldenkrais method and movement and how that can work for performance enhancement. Dr. Blades is an active soprano, experienced in many forms of voice performance, opera, oratorio, musical theater, recital, and folk, Celtic music. She's a certified core singing TM teacher and is the founder director of Harmony House online music studio, as well as the vocal health works dedicated to advancing healthy technique and performance. So you've been busy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Don't want to have any moss growing on me. <laughs> That's awesome. And before we get into all of those amazing things that you've accomplished, we usually like to start the podcast with our first segment, What's New and What's Good. And um, so in this segment, we usually talk about anything that might be interesting, good, positive, what's going on in our private or professional lives. And it sounds like um, your up and coming book is something to be super excited about. Can't wait to hear about it. Mm -hmm. I usually start and my what's new and what's good is um, I usually every uh, December go to see uh, Handel's Messiah. And I haven't been able to go in the last couple of years because of the pandemic and being in school. So uh, this past weekend, I was able to go for the first time in like four years. And it just just blew my mind because I love this piece of music. And um, the uh, venue was able to get some performers from the Metropolitan Opera. And it was just so good. It was just <laughs> so good. And um, just like living off of that high good, you know. And um, can't wait to like get back into the swing of going to see shows and performances again. And uh, this feels like the start of that again for me. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> I just love it so much. Um, Geneva, I love that you just brought that up. Just so that you know, near us on Friday, there's a, a sing-along. Oh, how cool. Are you so, gonna participate? Uh, Sam, Sam and I are gonna go just to sing in the audience and just enjoy the music, yeah. um, but it's not that far from where you are. So if you want information, I'll get that to you. How about you, Elizabeth? What's new and what's good? Well, after a very peripatetic past, um, it, which took me from my hometown in Western New York State, Saratoga Springs for college, University of Kansas, and you're gonna, this is gonna blow your mind. I have three uh, my undergraduate and my graduate degrees, the first ones are in geology. And so, uh, yes, <laughs> there's a story behind that. But so University of Kansas for geology, um, back to the capital district area, Albany area of New York State, 25 years in Rochester, but I also commuted for 10 years out to my college job in Tiffin, Ohio, back and forth 
um, every single week. So a lot of peripatetic and then eventually moved to the front range of Colorado, Estes Park, Rocky Mountain, Park, Rocky Mountain National Park area for 10 years, then to Virginia for five years where I taught at Shenandoah. And my house, my 1925 homestead that was built by my grandparents, unfortunately had gone out of the family due to my parents' death and we just couldn't keep it. Everybody had a house and everybody was elsewhere. My house came back on the market in 2018 and I didn't hesitate. I put my house in Virginia on the market and I moved back here in 2019. And I am sitting in the kitchen of my childhood, childhood home oh filled with gratitude and joy. I mean, that's amazing. And even more amazing that you got it at those old interest rates. <laughs> I did, I did. So I, I, synchronicity and serendipity came together and the universe smiled and here I am and the whole family is delighted. That's they thought amazing. I was crazy, but they were really delighted it's back. Wonderful <laughs> to be in your certainly. childhood home. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Come oh. down the stairs in the morning and I remember, you know, when we were little kids on Christmas morning, sitting on the top three steps. I was the youngest, so I got the first of the three steps. Waiting for dad to say, come on down. It's all those memories are all here. It's great. That's so soulful. Oh, I love that. Yes. Thank you. Oh, that's something to celebrate. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> How about you, Kristen? What's new and what's good? Sure. Um, we just finished a project near in a nearby town here and uh, did a Christmas musical, but it was all set with 1940s music. And um, what was really exciting for me also was to get to sing with my daughter. So she has a beautiful voice, but is the kind of person who the minute you hear her will close the door. Um, but she can harmonize, she can do all kinds of things. Well, um, there was a role that really spoke to her and she stepped out of her comfort zone and she did a beautiful job. It was, it was amazing to watch. Um, did she want any help from mom? No. <laughs> But she did great on her own. And so getting to to sing music that was um, uh, joyful and fun, and then to have the the meaningfulness of singing with my daughter, um, I've been on a high. Um, yeah, I mean, a little bit of an adrenaline drop. We're doing a little extra vitamin B this week. But other than that, um, so that's what I'm celebrating, just making art with people I love, you know? Awesome. Yeah, yeah. So let's head into our next segment. Um, I would love, um, Betsy, to hear a little bit about your pedagogy research. We know about your spectrum of voices. Um, what sparked your interest in this work? Um, if you can give a little bit of an overview, um, I'd love to dive into that because it's a really interesting um, way of looking at the perspective of voice from different perspectives. Sure. Um, trying to keep this very, very short. I could talk about this for 45 minutes easily. Yeah. But as I just said, I was a geologist. I minored in music in college. I would love to have gone into music. But my mother said to me when I was in high school, music is an avocation. That's not a career. You have a good brain. Go into the sciences. You can always do your music because we grew up in a family of sports, education, and music. So I said, okay, mom. So I went off and did the geology, but I was down in the music building at the University of Kansas as much as I was in the geology building, being in musicals, singing in choirs, taking voice lessons. Long story short, and it is, um, years later, I was married. Uh, my husband and I moved from the Capital District where we had been doing a lot of musicals and singing in a month, you know, uh, church choirs and whatnot um, to Rochester. And I looked around, and I said, hey, Eastman School of Music, here's my opportunity. I was 28, 29 and um, went to the Eastman School of Music. It was not an easy route in, but I did get accepted to the Masters of Music in Music Education and also discovered I was pregnant with our first child. So he became the mascot of Eastman. <laughs> Finished that degree and went into teaching elementary vocal general music for a couple of years and singing with the Opera Theater of Rochester, singing in church choir, doing uh, weddings. 
it was taking a huge toll on my voice, especially the daily grind of elementary vocal general. Mm -hmm. So um, I left that position, took a little time off and then reapplied to Eastman because I really wanted to go in for the DMA. And I was fascinated with how great voice teachers teach because I didn't have that background. I never had a, a voice lesson until I went to college and it was more coaching than real technique. And I knew I had, uh, I had a, a, a mishmash of technique. So um, looked around, my doctoral dissertation advisor, I said, I wanna do a dissertation. I'm not gonna be able to go to Europe and sing as many of the other of my colleagues do. I have a husband. I have two little boys under five years old. I have a house. I have a mortgage. <laughs> it was not going to work. So, so he said to me, well, um, yeah, if you want to do a dissertation, you don't need to for the DMA. You just you know, There's other requirements. I said, no, for my sake, I want to do a real dissertation. And he said, okay, um, go read every book on vocal pedagogy in the uh, Sibley Library. And the one that caught my, my attention was Richard Miller's techniques of singing, uh, Italian, French, British, and German schools. I thought, I wonder if there's an American school. That would be cool. But I really wanted to talk to great voice teachers. So I came back and he said, you're out. This is not my milieu. He was a, an instrumentalist. He said, I'm going to hand you over to Donna Fox, who was a singer, and she became my advisor. So I did the dissertation that is called, it was published in the Journal of Research in Singing and Applied Vocal Pedagogy, which is no longer in existence, but it was a viable, um, I was the June 1994, they published my entire dissertation. The dissertation is called Vocal Pedagogy in the United States, Interviews with Exemplary Teachers of Applied Voice. And it was the last, <laughs> It was the last journal, so I, I don't know if I killed the journal itself, but <laughs> <laughs> it was a nice way to go out. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was, that was okay, did the dissertation, you know, it was published. And then at the end of a dissertation, you're always, um, they, you know, is asked, what would be the next step? How, you know, what are your uh, recommendations for further study? And that's included at the end of my dissertation, which is, well, you could do more deeper interviews and go into these other areas. And at the same time, I was looking at it, by now it's 1993, 94, and I'm thinking, I might as well do this. <laughs> why, why not? So I reconnected uh, with um, all the teachers that were in the dissertation and also brought in people I couldn't include in the dissertation because I had to remove myself from the process, uh, qualitative research design. Now I could ask anybody I wanted to ask who either wasn't available for the dissertation or uh, had become more prominent during that period of time. And that's what turned into the first edition of Spectrum, uh, sorry, a Spectrum of Voices interviews or prominent American voice teachers discuss the teachers of singing. So that's the story I, behind it. I came to know, like, and get really curious about, about your work because you interviewed Barbara Dosher. Yes. And um, so that's how I ended up with the book. And then I'm going through this and seeing, um, can you talk a little bit about the structure of the book real quick? Oh, sure. Well, the, the dissertation was pretty simplistic. It was to ask about vocal concepts, including posture, which that's, that's kind of a word we don't use anymore, but it was in 1988. Mm -hmm. um, alignment, body for singing, breath, tone, registration, evenness through the range, diction, vowels, tension, imagery. That's under the first part. Uh, interviewing all of these teachers about how they approach those different teaching, those concepts or those um, those concepts. Um, the next part was more about a little bit of their, their background. I was really interested because of Richard Miller's book on the text, you know, the, the uh, different techniques and the different schools. And so the last question of that study was, do you think there's an American school? One of the things that really struck me, 
in the dissertation and in the book is how much agreement there was. We think of teachers sort of, especially back in that era, the, eight, the 1980s, 90s, um, because of Nats, it wasn't as closed in as, you know, an earlier era where you didn't tell anybody like you taught because it was your technique. Everybody was much more giving, but there was still this, um, it was kind of a era where um, there was this, I, I think it was a falsehood, but there was this idea, well, nobody agrees. Everybody has a different approach. No, these people, these exemplary voice teachers who are really on the same plane and a lot of the same information may be slightly different, um, you know, style of teaching it, but they had a lot of agreement. And one of the cool things was most of them said there was not an American school. They said it was an international school that we have here in the United States. So, you know, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me that there would be so much agreement because when, when you have a consensus or a body of people who are performing at the high level, like all of these prominent teachers, there really should be consistencies about what works, right? And that's how you get like consensus positions about what works. Mm -hmm. um, it's when it's when you're dealing with people who have maybe less experience or less proficiency when you're going to see the, the wider variations. So that actually makes sense. So what prompted your uh, newest edition? Oh, well, there is a story there, as always. There's a practical reason, and there was a professional reason. Um, the, the first edition of Spectrum, we're just going to short name it, Spectrum, it took me from 1984 till 2000 to really complete the book, because these were still busy people. And um, I was teaching full time and commuting back and forth to Ohio, as I said, from Rochester, New York. So it, it was like six years to wrangle everybody up together and, and finally get them to not only um, do the new part of the interview, which was much more about the practicalities of teaching and some of the philosophies and things that I couldn't address in the first in the uh, dissertation. Um, and a, a few of them actually, unfortunately, passed away while I was in the process. I sent their actual written interviews to them, and they could actually edit and do what they wanted, and a few of them never could. So it was, the book actually was published in 2001 by Scarecrow Press, which at the time was putting out a lot of cool stuff, including uh, Barbara Dosher's original book, um, her, her lovely Thank you. Functional unity. I get them mixed up because everybody came up with these kind of neat titles like the dynamics of the singing voice by Maribeth Bunch, so on and so forth. So uh, 2001 and Scarecrow Press was bought out by Roman and Littlefield. And all of a sudden, my book is not both of my books came out in 2001. And, and within probably about 12, 13 years, they're not really being promoted and they're disappearing from the catalogs uh, of Roman Littlefield. Then I went to the Chicago Nats in 2016 and there's a lovely display of Roman and Littlefield in the exhibition hall and my books are not even there. And I was not pleased. <laughs> so I, I asked the acquisitions editor who was present to meet with me privately. And I said, so why, why are my books not even being sold or promoted? And you're not even advertising them. And there's still people using them who tell me they, they have a hard time even getting them. And she said, well, in the publishing world, five years and your book becomes obsolete. Let that resonate for a minute. Obsolete in five years of published time. So from 2001 to 2006, it was cool. And all of a sudden, it's obsolete. Huh? I'm sorry. This is a lot of good stuff that people are still using as textbooks. And it's just meaty with this wonderful knowledge of these exemplary teachers. So I said, well, what am I going to do? She said, well, write a second edition and we'll republish that. Okay, I'll go home and I'll rewrite it. I'll do a second edition. 
that was the practical thing. This, the professional one was 20 years, a lot had happened. A lot had happened in our profession. Uh, CCM, which you didn't even talk about in 1995. It was like the poor you know, child you stuck in the corner because they weren't really part of the family. Um, and so CCM, voice science, voice technology, medicine, all of that had exploded between the 1993 and the current era. So it really was fun to go back and um, resend the original interviews to the people who still were on this side of the grass, as a friend of mine likes to say, <laughs> the ones who had passed away. And when the second edition came out, I already had lost 11 of the original wonderful teachers. Since then, about five or six more have passed away in this last several years. It's just, you know, um, that's life. So uh, I was able to have a number of them look at their original ones from the first edition and rewrite if they wanted to or update them because many of them had moved on and incorporated new ideas, new information. So that was the professional reason to do a second edition. That sounds exciting. In the second edition was, um, you know, as you're getting new voices coming in talking about voice, um, what are some of the the discoveries that you made things that delighted or confounded or puzzled or <laughs> intrigued nothing ever puzzles me i you know i keep an open mind um so there's a whole new chapter technology voice science medicine impact on the profession and um the new i call them the new teachers they're not new to teaching but they're new to being included in this book um were, let me just name off who they are because they they too have become, these people have had um, ascendancy in the profession since 93 or 2001. Um, Robert Edwin, Maribeth Bunch, who renamed herself Dame, that was a choice of hers. Stephen King at Rice University, and he also is the, um, he runs the Aspen Music Festival, and he also is involved with the San Francisco Opera. Very important guy. Jeannie Lavetri, Mary Saunders Barton, and Edith Davis Tidwell, gotcha. uh, Professor Emerita, University of Louisville, sorry, School of Music. Um, so those were the six additional joiners um, to the original book. Um, I, I won't go into who's passed on. That's too so, sad. So did you find like just with the first edition that a lot of these prominent teachers had a lot of consensus in what they thought was important and what they thought worked? Oh yeah, absolutely. That was, that was one of the more stunning um, expectations that I did not anticipate, but there was just uh, agreement uh, on the same page different ways of articulating or maybe dis discussing it, but they all were really, really in the, in the same wheelhouse, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Kristen and I have that conversation often about how vocabulary describing the same thing can be so different. Mm -hmm. about, you know, not just voice pedagogy, but then you bring in SLP, speech language pathology, which is my background. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a level of intuition when you're trying to have conversations with each other. <laughs> yes. Um, I remember in, in Dasha's book, she sometimes, I think she called it a semantic swamp. <laughs> um, yes, yes. Um, so you had the opportunity to interview all of these exemplary teachers. Um, how did this inform your own implementation of knowledge and expanding your awareness? And how did it influence you as a teacher and as a well, singer? Well, uh, again, we're going back to 1998 no, when I actually started doing the, the uh, research. And I did everything in person then. I drove, uh, I would, you know, plan these trips where, because I want, I had to videotape it, audio tape it, sit down with them in person. So starting in Boston at New England Conservatory, 
um, going down to New York City and Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music on down to Westminster Choir College um, and so on and so forth. That was the kind of the New England loop. And then a trip out to the Midwest, um, which included Oberlin, Cincinnati, uh, Cincinnati Conservatory, Indiana University, uh, so on and so forth. What I could not do was get to a lot of places like the West. However, 1990, Nats Conference was at uh, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and all these people were there. Richard Miller and um, Oren Brown and Marvin Kinsey and um, Helen Swen. They were all at the conference. So I'm not shy. <laughs> I would walk up there and say, would you like to come and have an interview? I'm, I'm doing a dissertation. And I had actually sent, for some of them, I sent out my, um, would you like to be in this dissertation? It was, a, it was an actual request. All done in post office delivery. We didn't have internet then. We didn't have email then. So uh, most of them already knew who I was because I had approached them that way. And we, we arranged for me to meet and talk to them there. So that was, that was really useful. Um, later on, of course, when it wasn't a qualitative research study and it had this you know, research methodology I had to follow, for the second edition, no, excuse me, for the book, I was able to do majority on phone. Okay. We didn't we didn't have Zoom, but we did have phone and I would record the the phone conversation. So what were some of the gems that after having these conversations that you incorporated into your own work? Well, I you have to say at at the time I was also still studying at Eastman, um my first master's student and also doctoral student teacher was Marsha Baldwin, who was a staple at the Metropolitan Opera Company. And then she taught at Indiana University and then she came to Eastman. So um, I did not choose her. She, she was one of the ones who met the uh, criteria to be in the book. And then I, um, at her invitation, I, um, was, I was allowed to go on to Carol Weber's studio to finish my doctorate. So a lot of what I was receiving was, you know, my own personal voice lessons. I had been starting to do my own teaching and trying to really incorporate all the different ideas. Um, I can't really say that there was one thing that stuck out, but I have a couple of favorite quotes. Um, just two, just two. Helen Swank, who was uh, in at Columbus, Ohio, the Ohio University. I love how it's the Ohio University. <laughs> Their voice lab is named after her. It's the Helen Swank Ohio University voice lab. She had a lovely um, house and she invited me to come to her um, living room and we sat down and just a, a gentle, um, beautiful soul. She talked about a Quaker saying called peace at the center. And this was part of the alignment or the posture, but she incorporated it more as when you find peace at the center, at the core of yourself, then everything flows. And I, I, I think that just summarizes probably what I, I have done now for 25, 30 years or more. When yes, I hear yes. that, that scene, it yes. makes me think of like, you know, the work that I'm doing now in trauma-informed care, about engaging that relaxation response. Yes. You know, and yes, when we perform, we'll have some of elevation, you know, some yes. adrenaline and that kind of thing. Yes. To, to, to be grounded in like those kind of mindfulness practices that helped help you have peace at the center. I love that. Yes. That could be the name of a book, Peace at the Center. That is my next book on trauma-informed care. <laughs> peace I, well, it, give, give the uh, credit to Helen Swank. The dear woman is in her 90s and she's still, um, you know, going strong. She does not teach anymore, but she is just the loveliest of people. 
Yeah. <laughs> and what was the second quote that you had? Oh, well, I probably should have finished, uh, finished with peace at the center. Um, oh. One of the, Carol Weber, she was another one, just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And, and so imaginative and articulate and knew never, um, it wasn't like a canned kind of thing with her, whatever spontaneity. And I sat in on a lot of lessons. She invited me to come and sit. She says, I know your interest come pick, you know, you want to pick my brains. Well, come watch how I teach as long as it's okay with the student. That was the best training I could have had. But she would talk about a singer who is not using their full body, body, breath, and vowels is like a concert pianist with the lid down. Uh. The piano can't really resound if the lid is down and the singer cannot find that amplification of body, breath, mind, if they're not using the whole instrument. Giving credit to two amazing ladies. <laughs> Well, so. I can see that there, there's a, the thread leading into exploring the voice through movement here. Yes. Right. Good job. Yeah. Nice yes. segue. <laughs> yeah. So for our last segment, we talk about a featured agentic practice. Mm -hmm. um, we could talk about a lot of things you talked about, but, you know, it sounds like you're leaning more towards... Um, engaging the relaxation response, mindfulness through the body work, through things like Feldenkrais alignment, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. So what do you think? I know you're a singer, performer, and teaching artist. What is your favorite agentic practice? Well, I have to give tribute to core singing. Uh, uh, Maribeth Dame was highly regarded, of course, with her original book, Dynamic of the Singing Voice, um, it was the anatomy and the physiology um, of the singing that was rooted it in science. And Maribeth actually uh, spent 20 years in London teaching at the Royal College of Surgeons, believe it or not. Um, she was in charge of their dissection labs. So she did autopsies, <laughs> controlled autopsies. So she came through, and of course, she was a singer and a voice teacher, but that was her interest. Um, chorus singing was a complete departure from the world that she was embedded in and that she really was regarded for, which was the physiology, the anatomy, this hard science. Um, and it was it's called a joyful approach to singing and vocal pedagogy. Um, the first training in the United States was done in 2010 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Cynthia Vaughn had her uh, used, we used her voice studio. Cynthia is quite well known in the voice community. Um, and I was living in Colorado at the time. So it was easy to go and spend an entire week in Fort Collins and just absorb. It was an amazing, amazing life-changing experience. So that the course singing training and the play, 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 uh, sing, uh, tune in, tune up, and tune out was also another expression that Maribeth was using. Um, I would have to say that amplifies and informs my teaching all the time because it's about creativity. And, you know, Maribeth would say, somebody would say, well, I'm trying to think outside the box. And her response would be, there is no box. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so yeah, just to let you know, some of the workshops and presentations that I have been giving, uh, the most recent one was at the International Congress of Voice Teachers in Vienna last summer, year ago, August. And my presentation was called, um, May the Ease Be With You, Integrating Body, Mind, and Emotion for Optimal Experience in Teaching. So that's really where my interests lie and where I'm devoting the most of my energy and curiosity and exploration. Uh, can you explain to us a little bit about what your what Feldenkrais is and yes. how that ties in to yes. singing with the whole body? Okay. Um, again, a little bit of background. While I was a doctoral student at Eastman with two little boys under five and the, you know, all the pressures of the home, the mortgage, um, per performing, teaching, all of that, um, 
Marsha Baldwin took me aside and said, Betsy, there's a new man in town. He's a Feldenkrais practitioner and Eastman has hired him to give Feldenkrais lessons on Sunday evenings. You need to go. You need to go do these because I was just a bundle of tension and stress and nerves. And so I did. Um, and it was an eye-opening, mind-blowing experience. They're 45-minute lessons, these awareness through movement lessons, and these are Feldenkrais designed. I'll get back to who he was in a second. So I, I at the end of the lesson, we were lying on the, on the floor, and it's pianists and instrumentalists and singers and piano well I just said piano um the girl next to me was a freshman clarinetist so we're doing all these really interesting kind of movements like hmm sat up and oh my lord I felt like my entire torso was huge just expanded and he's and then Sam would say okay everyone walk around and we walked around I thought oh my lord what is this I feel fabulous and the girl who had been next to me, she comes back and she looks at me and she goes, oh, my God, all your wrinkles are gone. <laughs> I was all of 30 something. But <laughs> so I ran to the ladies room and I look in the mirror and I, I did. It was like 15 years. It melted on. What is this stuff? So long story again, short. I got in touch with Sam. I said, I'd like to know more about this. And he said, well, I just joined the local Gilbert and Sullivan chorus and I don't sing. Can we barter? Can we swap? You teach me voice and I'll teach you Feldenkrais. After about two weeks together, um, I said, Sam, we have a paper. And after a couple more weeks, I said, Sam, we have a book. So that's where that started was the um, work together. So Feldenkrais, Moshe Feldenkrais, Nine, uh, 1904 to 1984, I believe are his birth and dates. Uh, Ukrainian Jew, he was born in a small village, brilliant mind, and he decided when he was 14 years old, he was going to walk from Ukraine, which we're all very familiar, to Israel and join um, the local community there. And while he was in Israel, he was teaching other people. Now he's only you know, a teenager and he actually was playing soccer. He injured his knee and he fixed his knee on his own just by exploration. And then he went on to the Sorbonne in Paris to get a doctorate in science, phys- physics. Um, and he also started studying with a judo teacher, and he was the first European to win a black belt in judo. So all this physiology, acoustic physiology, the um, physics and uh, anatomy and physiology. Um, he studied with Marie Curie's son-in-law, Frederick Curie, and they wow. started working in the lab together. And then the Nazis invaded Paris and being Jewish, he was one of the last, he was on the last boat that got out and went to Britain. He carried with him illegally. He wasn't supposed to bring anything. He carried with him two liters of heavy water and gave it to the British naval uh, Navy. And that went eventually to the Manhattan Project, which is where the original atomic bomb was created. So this man is like, um, he was he was an amazing um, Forrest Gump is what I say. He was in the right place at the right time. Okay, he injured his knee working for the British uh, Navy when he got hit by a bus and the same knee that he demanded. So he went to into a wheelchair, went to the doctors and they said to him, well, you might, recover if you have surgery or you might spend the rest of your life in a wheelchair and he said to them you're not very good doctors so he went home and he figured out what he could do and he cured himself and that started the Feldenkrais method he's doing his own um, remedial work and then people wanted to know so he started teaching you know just anybody that was interested and that grew into the Feldenkrais Guild which is international and there are Feldenkrais practitioners all around the world. So what are you seeing when you're working with singers using this Feldenkrais you know, um, process? What yes. are you seeing? 
Well, I, as most teachers do, or voice teachers, we teach with our eyes, our ears, our knowledge, our experience, but also our kind of an intuition, an intuitive sense. Mm -hmm. And it gets evolved and developed. Um, I can see from how a person holds themselves. Sometimes it's very up and tight. Uh, They've been told, you know, shoulders back lift the, the, the rib cage, um, lift the soft palate, whatever you want to say. And, and it's exemplified or it's exaggerated the point where it's really getting the way. So with the Feldenkrais method, there are lessons which Sam and I actually modularize because original lesson is such as I took 45 minutes in a class situation you can't do that in a lesson. There's, there goes the whole lesson time. So we modularized Feldenkrais lessons to uh, be about seven, eight minutes at the most. Um, and you can do one module, you could do a second module. They usually, the full lesson is about three or four modules. So for instance, if I hear tongue tension in somebody, I, I will go to a very, uh, favorite lesson that I have used called Taming Tongue Tension. And I will take them through the first module of this Feldenkrais method lesson. It's just a really simple. These are are very um, non-threatening. So if I'm doing a Taming Tongue Tension, they keep their mouth closed and they're just taking their tongue and they're gently exploring Let's, for instance, the first part of it, they're just taking it to the very farthest back tooth. If that's too much stress, you can start with the one earlier. And you're moving around, touching each tooth and kind of exploring the feel of it until you get to the other side. And then you repeat that with a little bit more exploration. And when they sing again, the tongue tension is gone. That's I've never had it not work. Now, somebody could probably keep their tongue really tight and tense, but if they really, (laughs) if they want to pick something that that doesn't feel comfortable, they will. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I I feel like I'm giving short shrift to the whole method, but um, it's, you can go online to the Feldenkrais Guild. You can find a Feldenkrais practitioner in your area. They're all over the place. They have to study for four years. It's not an easy um, certification to do. Um, so it's better known in Europe than the American the United States. It's not as well known as some other, such as Alexander Technique, but hopefully people are finding out more and more from my book. Thanks. <laughs> And you have an upcoming book where you're talking about Feldenkrais. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, that was fun. Um, Back when the first one came out, Scarecrow Press in 2001, our illustrator, this book has uh, illustrations in certain lessons if it's a confusing instruction. Like if it says, put your hand across like this, the illustrator Mm-hmm. was a met- method you know, she's a medical illustrator as well as a professional harpist you will see a drawing of a fellow with his hand across so um she said to us when are you going to write a book for us the rest of us the instrumentalists because almost everybody in the rochester philharmonic orchestra are playing with performance injuries mm. and that was not an exaggeration so 2001, 2023. So you know, 22 years later, we finally, finally found her. Our, you know, we're able to say, okay, here's the book, and she is actually included in the book, not just for the illustrations, but chapter 15. Uh, we, um, we, we receive perspectives. We ask questions of every single major instrument in all the family of instruments, and even some. Um, something we have a, a accordionist as well as the expected instrumentals and and they were really uh, essential because that chapter 15 is from their perspective what what their common injuries are what they do to try and avoid it what helps them and and then uh, we were able to supply some 
nice advice and which lessons in the book would be useful to, for their particular malady, such as carpal tunnel syndrome. There's, that's very common. doesn't matter you know, if you're a trumpet player or a violinist or whatever. Um, common ailments, common injuries that are done just because of the amount of time they're playing their instrument and the position they have to hold it in. You know, some of them are just chest injuries, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's the new book. Um, it's dense. It's up. We've upgraded many of the topics that are in the early part of the book, such as kinesthetic imagination, neuroplasticity. Uh, the physics of easy movement. Those were all in the previous books, but they've been much expanded upon because of the amount of, again, research and knowledge that has come through since even 2018. Now, is this a, um, a method that could help a singer find that peace at the core? Absolutely. That's, that's one of the other... Um, you know, um, presentations I give is taming tongue, taming tongue tension, but taming tension and performance anxiety using the Feldenkrais method. And I've taught that again, many, many different um, national conferences around the country. And one is called releasing the eyes. And people say, what's the eyes have to do with it? Well, 90%, unless you are uh, I, you know, blind or um, visually impaired, the eyes receive 90% of sensory information about our world, 90%. So if you can relax your eyes, you're going to calm down your entire nervous system. So that peace in the center is actually elicited just through this uh, particular um, Feldenkrais lesson. And even I, I've done this again with so many people, including myself, including my students and including people in these workshops I give them. It's, it takes about five or less minutes to calm them down. Wow. In fact, the, uh, the voice center we were speaking of um, when I, when I did that second short course, there was a woman who was not a singer, but she taught, uh, actors and performers and she was so nervous but she volunteered I asked for a volunteer and she said I'll do it she was in Spain and she sang a little Spanish folk song and it was just so you could tell she wanted it to be so easy and I said okay fine 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 she was oh no I'm sorry I'm sorry I said let's just do a little bit of this gentle movement it's just a gentle movement and you watch your hand and all the movements in Feldenkrais are very slow. Nothing is like turn your head left and right and you're done. You, it's awareness of what you're doing. You're paying attention to the movement. And I she did that. And then you close your eyes and you imagine you can still see your eyes. Took all of about two minutes. And then I had her sing again. And she got through about two phrases and burst into tears. She was so overwhelmed how much easy and she said I felt like my voice was finally flying it was so sweet oh. and it, <laughs> when someone is is doing a Feldenkrais practice um is that something that you do like I don't know an hour every day you know 15 minutes a day how does it work it's not an exercise I have to really bring that up because people want to call these lessons exercises. Oh, I love the Feldenkrais exercise. Feldenkrais named them lessons for a reason, because the body, the neuromuscular body is learning. Mm -hmm. And it's returning to the learning style of babies and children, little ones that are first just learning how to push themselves up or turn themselves over or get up and kind of rock and then eventually maybe crawl. It's the uh, primordial biological nervous system that is telling and reacquainting and also reforming. And the neat thing about it is when you have what you do with the Feldenkrais lesson, even if it's just a module of five minutes, it's not temporary. It doesn't go away. It's retained because you actually reprogrammed the computer of that part of your brain. 
so there so there's some regular practice that has to be done though of that lesson I would imagine you can buy the book (laughs) (laughs) okay and when we get yeah when we first brought out the book um our and we're first presenting you know these information because everybody was curious about it we said it's like a cookbook if you follow the recipe if you follow the lesson that's in here you will have the benefit of the results so it's the the lessons are literally uh, laid out by steps and there are um, the way it is printed is everything in bold is actually an instruction. All right, so the very first uh, taming tension, step one, sit comfortably. Open your mouth and see how this feels. Repeat several times and see if you can make this easier each time. Make light fists with your hands and release them several times. Allow your hands to feel freer and more relaxed each time. Pause. Now the pauses are just as important as the movements because that's where the brain is receiving all that information. And there's a lot. It's receiving it, synthesizing it, analyzing it, and then saying, oh, you go here in putting in, in putting it into the brain and it's retained. So again, it's not something like I do, I do yoga. I've done Tai Chi, uh, Qigong. It's not where you go to a class and you're following the yogi or the Tai Chi, you know, the Tai Chi master, and you're trying to learn these different, you know, movements and things. And then you may go home and practice them. Okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to do down dog and I'm going to do the mountain. I'm going to, you know, these are instructive lessons where the body and the brain are actually reprogramming what's going to be a better way of using yourself. I'm, I'm really curious. I'm intrigued about it. What you described, it sounds like a little bit like progressive muscle relaxation um, with the tongue and the clenching of the unclenching of the hand there. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm curious. I, I am going to check out that book. Um, Good. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's time to say goodbye, friends, you know, like Mickey Mouse Club. Oh, I I used to be a Mickey Mouse clubber. I wanted to be Karen. She was my age and I thought she was just, that was my my dream role. But anyway. (laughs) We have so enjoyed having you. Thank you so much for sharing um, the amazing work that you've done. Thank Um, you. Thank you for having me. Oh, sure. Anytime. In this episode, we discussed comparative voice pedagogy and the Feldenkrais method with Betsy Blades. You can find more information about her Voice Study Center short courses and her books in today's episode notes. If you enjoy today's content, please don't forget to subscribe to the Agentic Voice podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a review so that we know what you like and what you want to hear more of. Until next time, take care.